Welcome to Bed Crime Stories Podcast. I'm your host, T. To my bed crimers, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are. Thank you for joining me. To anyone new here, a warm welcome. Thank you so much for checking out my channel. Let me just ask that after listening to or watching the video, if you learned something or if it caused you to think a little, do me a favor, smash the like button. Now, let's dig in. When you stumble upon an alleged perpetrator of a quadruple crime like the one out of Moscow, Idaho, where Ethan Chapin, Madison Mogan, Zana Kernodal, and Kaylee Gonsalves lost their lives on November 13th, 2022, everyone wonders, could this person, suspect Brian Koberger, have done this before? It's highly unusual to have a first-time perpetrator commit a crime of this ilk. Four people done in with a sharp object. That combination usually is the work of a serialist. We know that Koberger has no previous criminal record, but of course he could have committed other crimes and simply not been caught. I will admit that I've spent time looking at cold cases in Pennsylvania during the years that suspect Brian Koberger was studying at DeSales University in Central Valley, when he was pursuing his undergraduate and master's degrees. DeSales University is 48 minutes away by car from Brian's family home in Albrightsville, Pennsylvania. I've looked at the years 2022 all the way back to 2010 in the entire state, and I haven't yet found anything that seems to fit. And by fit, I'm referring to connections and patterns of the crime based on what we, the public, know about the crime in Moscow, Idaho. According to an article I read on the Toronto Sun newspaper's website, investigators have followed a protocol to see if there's anything more to be gleaned from Koberger's background and movements to see if he could have committed other crimes. Joseph Giacalone, a retired New York Police Department detective, told Fox News that cold case investigators search for clues in each case to see if there are any links. Gian Colone said, and I quote, One thing about cold cases is you always look to see if your case is connected to any others. And the reason behind that is many times those cases will hold clues for each one. If you can put them all together, you can put together the entire package, end quote. Gian Coloni cautioned, though, that not every suspect for every case turns out to be a serialist, and that's a good point. First, Koberger hasn't been convicted of any crime yet. Second, we don't yet know if Koberger committed any previous crimes that he just hasn't been caught for. Third, we also cannot know for certain if Koberger would have gone on to commit other crimes, assuming he is responsible for Kaylee, Madison, Zana, and Ethan's deaths. But detectives are currently looking at cold cases in places where Koberger has lived before, worked before, and traveled before to see if any patterns or connections jump out. One thing that perked investigators' antennae was Koberger's two cross-country drives from his home state of Pennsylvania 
to Washington State, where he was studying. Koberger drove from Pennsylvania to Washington in the summer of 2022 to begin his studies at Washington State University. He then drove that same long-distance route, but this time from Washington to Pennsylvania in December, when he and his father Michael road-tripped home for the holidays. Such long highway trips make for a vast stretch where one with evil intent can fairly easily find victims. I think it's unlikely Koberger committed any crime on the drive home with his father in the car. Very unlikely. But it is possible that if Brian Koberger drove from Pennsylvania to Washington alone back in the summer of 2022, he could have carried out dark deeds. Investigators would not be doing a thorough job on this case if they didn't look to see if any cold cases along Koberger's route appear similar to the crime in Moscow. Driving the highways and byways of the United States is, I'm sorry to report, a classic behavior of serialists. I say this because we've seen this many times in the past. The American interstate highway system has long been a popular hunting ground for serialists looking for prey. In fact, since the 1950s, hundreds of victims have been found along our nation's highway system. What's particularly jarring about this fact is that Americans love to road trip, to pile the kids in the car and hit the highway for interstate travel, usually in the summer months. I mean, who among us has never been on a family road trip? It's such a dichotomy. On the one hand, American highways ferry fun-loving families to vacation destinations like Disneyland and Disney World. And on the other hand, the highways have also served as a conduit for serialists to find easy prey. Locating places along the interstate where potential victims are hanging out is almost as easy as finding a fast food restaurant or a gas station. You've got your roadside rest stops. You've got vast parking lots at truck stops. You've got long, lonely stretches of highway. And at night, those isolated distances become dark, quiet, and only a few vehicles here and there are on them. Also, there tend to be areas of brush off the side of American highways. That brush offers the perfect hiding and dumping ground for victims. Of course, serialists are drawn to our highways. Let me just share a few examples of some notorious serialists who did their dirty deeds along the nation's highways. In the 1970s, a rather slight, unassuming man named Patrick Kearney started using his downtime from work to target and do in transient young men along California's highways. Kearney would pick up hitchhikers. Back then, people thought hitchhiking was no big deal. He'd also pick up young men in gay bars. Once alone with his victim, Kearney would essay them and then do them in. Afterward, he'd pull out the old chainsaw or some other sharp object and disassemble things, if you know what I mean. Next, he'd head out in his car and dump industrial trash bags with the remnants inside along the highway. Kearney is suspected of doing in up to 43 men 
but he only pleaded guilty to 21 in exchange for prosecutors taking the ultimate penalty off the table. By the way, he's still alive, but he's also still serving those 21 life sentences. I almost feel sorry for those people on the chain gang who have to clean up along the side of the highway. They don't ever know what exactly they're going to stumble across. Another notorious serialist operating along America's highways was truck driver William Bonin. In fact, Bonin was also deemed the freeway blank. I think you can guess what word fits in the blank. Bonin was arrested in Hollywood, California on June 11, 1980, while in the act of essaying a runaway teenager. Once Bonin was in custody, the authorities found evidence in his truck directly tying him to the S.A. and doing in of at least 13 other people. Typically, Bonin used his hands to harm others. He'd then dispose of their naked bodies along the highway. Bonin was found guilty of 10 crimes in Los Angeles County in 1982 and another four in Orange County in 1983. And I'm happy to report that in 1996, Bonin was done in by the authorities. Good riddance. Then there's Randy Kraft who was given two nicknames, the Freeway Blank and the Scorecard Blank. Take the word Miller, swap out the M for a K, and you'll know what word belongs there. Kraft kept a coded list of all 61 of his victims. You heard that right. 61 victims. Although the code book recorded 61 people, Kraft was only convicted for 16. Kraft's preferences were old men, particularly servicemen. What a way to, like, thank somebody for their service. Kraft, too, found his hunting ground along California's highways. He would lure them with alcohol and drugs. Sadly, this monster, at age 75, remains on death row to this day in San Quentin State Prison in Marin County, California. I say sadly because I think the world would be better off without him. And lest you think this stuff only happens on highways in California, let me tell you about the I-70 blank. This perp left behind a string of victims in three states, Kansas, Indiana, and Missouri, and all the victims' workplaces were right off the I-70. To this day, no one knows who this perpetrator is. Then there's the I-45 blank, who favors a 50-mile stretch of I-45 in Houston, Texas, to Galveston, Texas. 42 victims have been found, and all of them were women. After a time, the whole stretch of the I-45, where the women were found, became known as the blank fields by Texans. Substitute a K in the word tilling, and you'll know what word belongs in the blank. The authorities believe that more than one person is behind these crimes, potentially even multiple serialists. I'll leave you with one more case of a highway perpetrator, although I could keep going. From 1986 to 1989, 
four double crimes, meaning four couples, were done in on or near the Colonial Parkway. The Colonial Parkway is a 23-mile scenic stretch in Virginia. All of the victims were young, white, and were either a romantic couple or would have appeared to be a romantic couple to a stranger. The first pair of victims was found with wounds to their necks in their car. The second couple was done in with a different weapon, and their car was discovered not far from where their bodies washed up from the James River. The third pair vanished, and only their abandoned vehicle was found. The fourth pair were located in the woods, and their car had been left weeks earlier at a rest stop. The investigation for all these crimes remains active. But let's get back to Brian Koberger. Because he's from and has studied in Pennsylvania, detectives out east are scouring their cold case files. Two counties in particular are of special interest, Lehigh County and Northampton County. Koberger was a student at Northampton Community College in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. He may also have attended a satellite campus in Monroe County. According to King 5 News, the authorities in Northampton have searched records of unsolved cold cases using Koberger's height, weight, method of operation, and other characteristics that could have flagged him in an unsolved crime. So far, they haven't found any connections. Here's what the district attorney of Northampton County, Terrence Huick, told King 5 News, and I quote, In fact, nothing with respect to Koberger has come about in our investigations of cold cases or unsolved cases to this point, but we always continue to investigate and pursue leads, end quote. In the neighboring Lehigh County, where Koberger spent four years studying criminology on the campus of DeSales University, the district attorney, Jim Martin, said that after Koberger's arrest on December 30th of 2022, the first thing he did was ask the director of the Regional Intelligence and Investigation Center to see if they had any contact with Mr. Koberger. That database includes 6 million police reports and related data. It showed only one contact with Koberger, and that was a 911 call in which his car was locked behind a parked gate on a bike trail. Martin has said his office's probe has not found any links to Koberger and any unsolved crimes. I have to say, reading that his car was locked behind a parked gate on a bike trail makes me a little squeamish. If detectives in Pennsylvania are looking for links between Koberger and cold cases, detectives in Idaho and Washington must surely be doing that as well. At least you'd think so. We know that in Idaho, there was an incident with a dog. The police quickly ruled out that connection. There were also two unsolved nighttime crimes in the region with eerie similarities to the Moscow crime. 
including the one involving Travis and Jamalyn Jutin, and another involving a woman named Sandra Ladd. 26-year-old Travis died in Oregon on August 13, 2021, around 3 a.m., in his and his wife's home, after being attacked by a burglar with a sharp object. His wife, Jamalyn, thankfully survived, despite having 19 wounds. 71-year-old Sandra Ladd was discovered deceased in her Washougal, Washington home on June 14th of 2020. Ladd had many wounds to her torso, again from a sharp object. Washougal is about a five-hour trip west from Moscow, Idaho. These two crimes took place 70 miles apart, with 14 months in between them. Authorities in the Pacific Northwest eventually ruled these unsolved cases as not being connected to Koberger. Only time will tell if Brian Koberger is discovered to be behind other unsolved crimes. For now, he sits in an Idaho jail cell, awaiting his preliminary hearing in June. During that hearing, prosecutors will seek to show there's enough evidence to support the felony charges against him. By the way, News Nation, who has been breaking all the new news on this case, reported this week that Kaylee Gonzalez had a Bluetooth speaker in her bedroom and evidence of Koberger's phone connecting to that device could help the prosecution's case. Former FBI and CIA special agent Tracy Walder said this on News Nation, and I quote, If Koberger's phone tried to connect with that Bluetooth device, that's what all our phones do. They're constantly trying to connect to whatever devices that are, whether they're in the Elantra, whether it's in her home, that would go towards placing Koberger physically or his cell phone at the scene of the crime, end quote. The probable cause affidavit said that Koberger's phone was either turned off or on airplane mode around the time of the crime but the data right before it was turned off suggested he was heading in the direction of the student's off-campus home, while data after the crime, when it was turned back on, suggested Koberger was heading away from Moscow, Idaho. Per Walder, if there's evidence that Koberger's phone connected to the Bluetooth speaker, it would give more credence to Koberger's DNA on the sheath being there, and the bushy eyebrows that survivor Dylan M. saw on the masked man actually belonging to none other than Brian Koberger. Walder said, and I quote, that really speaks to the totality of evidence, because now you have three things that physically put him there and by him she means Koberger. Clark Walton, a forensics and cybersecurity expert, said this about whether a Bluetooth link could place Brian Koberger at the crime scene, and I quote, 
Your iPhone does keep a record of what Wi-Fi networks you've connected to, certain information about those networks. Importantly, potentially for this case, the last date and time that that phone was connected to that Wi-Fi network, and the same works for Bluetooth as well. Walton added, let's say hypothetically at some point in the past, Koberger's phone had initiated or completed a handshake with really any other device in proximity to that house. Coming back in close proximity to that house, even if the phone were in airplane mode, as was pointed out, that Bluetooth connection may likely still be enabled and that handshake could occur. That evidence would stay on the phone and that's something that a forensic examiner could later take and say, yes, this phone was in, within, Bluetooth communication of this speaker, end quote. Okay, that's a lot to drink in. I'll leave it at that. I'd like to wish you all a very happy Valentine's Day. I hope you all have someone telling you how important you are and how much they love you. And if you don't, then let me say it to you. I love you. And I'll see you next time on Bed Crime Stories.